We are continuing our series in Paul's letter to the Colossian church. And before we read the passage, let me pray. Gracious God and Father, we, we gather today with the desire to hear you speak to us, to meet with us, to comfort us, to convict us, and to encourage us through your word. By your spirit, Lord, which you have so freely given to us, please reveal your Son and Savior, Jesus Christ, to our hearts and to our minds. Help us today to see Christ more clearly and to, Lord, catch a greater glimpse of his glory and worth so that we might love him more than anything this world has to offer. Lord, please glorify yourself today through your word and in your people. And we pray in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, we started the series in Colossians a few weeks back. Devin did a wonderful job these past weeks leading us to this passage. If you've ever been to a trade show, you can understand the attraction every booth brings as you walk each aisle. Marilyn and I enjoy going to many home improvement trade shows and garden trade shows, and they're taking place in large convention centers with aisles upon aisles of booths and salesmen, and there are just the latest and greatest gadgets, and they're all attractive. They all draw our attention, especially mine. Everyone there is, is there to sell you something and to give you free gifts and to promote what they believe is the best product. And as we will learn, and as we've learned, the Colossian church was in a sense mired in a trade show of religious ideas and opinions that were all false teachings. Booths were filled with religious salesmen hawking their views of true spirituality, and they swirled around the Colossian believers creating dissension, uproar, challenges in the church. One booth in the Colossian church promoted the worship of angels as a way to true spirituality. Another booth pushed asceticism, adhering to strict rules to attain a high spiritual state. And another booth would offer a secret knowledge, a, a mystic way to draw closer to God and be a special believer. Another booth required the attendance of religious festivals and promoted guidelines on what to eat and what not to eat. And tragically, one booth would even suggest in the Colossian church that Christ was not enough to obtain salvation. All of these booths and ideas create dangerous distractions that diverted the Colossian believers away 
from having a concentrated focus and love for Jesus Christ. Those false teachings were leading the Colossian Christians away from the gospel. They were shifting their hope in the gospel as we will read in just a moment as Paul states in verse 23 of chapter 1. Now look with me beginning in, in verse 15. Epaphras was a wise and caring pastor. Epaphras was the man who founded this church. Epaphras was the man who was converted by Paul And Epaphras was a man who had a pastoral love and care for this church. And so Epaphras makes a 1,200-mile journey from Colossae to Rome, where Paul is in prison, to get advice from Paul to draw him out as to what he is to do with this controversy, these religious false teachers that were invading the church, these wolves in sheep's clothing. And so Paul writes a pastoral letter in response to this controversy because of his love for Epaphras, his love to protect this church, this church that he feels he is a father of, even though he's never visited here, he still feels an affinity and a love for this church because of his direct connection to Epaphras. And so he writes this letter, and it is a letter of amazing truth, profound theological truth. And the question for us this morning is, what does this letter do for us? We know what it does for the Colossian church, but what does it do for us? Well, I believe this letter will help us understand how we can walk wisely in Christ with the many booths that surround us, with the many distractions that surround us in our day and age. The timelessness of the Bible supplies grace to each one of us as we open it up, as we read it, as we study it, as we meditate on it. It brings truth to bear upon our lives. It makes a claim upon our lives. From the Old Testament that speaks of the preparation of Christ's coming to the Gospels that reveal the life and person of Jesus Christ, to the book of Acts where the Gospel begins to spread, to the epistles that help us direct the life and affairs of the church, to the book of Revelation when Jesus sits on the throne and someday will return. The Bible is supreme. It is supreme in all its voice about Jesus Christ and who he is. But of all of the teaching in the Bible, of all the teaching in the Bible, of all the teaching in the Bible about Jesus Christ, there is no verse, no passage more significant than the passage we are about to read in Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 15. Read along with me. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. 
For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. There is, brothers and sisters, there is no more glorious passage to preach about Christ than this passage in Colossians. But there is also, I think, for me, no more challenging passage to preach than this passage in Colossians. I don't know how to adequately proclaim the riches of this verse. A boy was watching his father, a pastor, write a sermon. How do you know what to say, he asked his dad. Why, God tells me, replied the father. Oh, then, said the little boy, why do you keep crossing things out? (laughs) (laughs) That is my experience in preparing this message, how rich and deep it is. Like many pastors, there is in my heart a fierce commitment to present Christ to you in all his majesty, in all his fullness, in all his glory each time that I preach so that you might see him more clearly and you might love him more Deeply. It's why I'm so often aware of my inadequacies in preaching, because my words fall short in presenting to you the incomparable Christ. And that is the title of this message, the incomparable Christ. That is what Paul is telling us here in these verses. He is describing to us the incomparable Christ. 
and for a human who is finite to describe the infinite, the incomparable Christ, it is like trying to describe air to you. (laughs) I just don't have the words to do it. I don't want anything to distract you from seeing Christ. When I backpacked the Grand Canyon with my son David and we camped down in the bottom of the canyon, there are no artificial lights. There's no electricity down there. It's a, it's a campground that is lit up by the stars. And because there is no ambient light, there's no distracting light, when you look up, it's as though every star in the universe is visible. The Milky Way, which I have rarely ever seen, is clear and visible. Because there's nothing to distract from seeing God's creation. And that is what Paul wants to do here. He wants you to see the Milky Way. He wants you to see the stars. He wants you to see Christ in all his glory. He wants you to see the incomparable Christ so that whatever tempts you to be distracted as you live your daily life in a world filled with distracting booths, He writes this so that you will see Christ more clearly and that you will love Jesus more deeply. Now, thankfully, God does not leave me to my own abilities, but wonderfully uses his own words. He provides the description of who Jesus is. There is no other place in Scripture that does present Jesus so clearly and so majestically and so powerfully other than this passage. And this passage exists for the sole purpose of showing us the incomparable Christ and rescuing our attention away from what distracts us to Jesus Christ. It's why Paul wrote to the Colossians. He refocused them back on their Savior. Because, as we read in verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. That was what was happening. The Colossians' hope of the gospel was being shifted. It was drifting away this gospel hope that they had. They were tempted to find life in other things than Christ, even things that appeared godly. So not everything that is spiritual is biblical. Not everything that is spiritual is Biblical. Walk into any Christian bookstore today, and it is like the booths at a trade show. It is what the Colossian church would have walked into. Prosperity gospel over here, the special mystic life 
over here. And every shelf bearing religious ideas and distractions. And few books about the incomparable Christ. That's what the Colossian believers faced. And the warning Paul gives in this passage is this. If you find greater peace and rest and hope in anything other than Christ and His gospel, then your hope has shifted. We've got to ask ourselves this morning, where do we truly find hope? What do we truly find hope in? Where do we truly find peace and rest? What comforts our souls? What comforts our souls spiritually? What comforts our souls practically? Do we soothe our fears of God's displeasure by our spiritual practices? That's not the hope of the gospel. Do we soothe our fears through financial stability, relational stability, good health, restful vacations? What comforts us? What gives us peace? What gives us rest? If any of these things, financial stability, relational stability, good health, vacations, material success, good reputation, peace on every side, if these things are the things that are your most appealing comfort givers, if that is more appealing to me or to you than gathering together here on a Sunday to hear God speak through His Word and to sing in unison His praises together as a body and to pray together as a body. Brothers and sisters, then your hope in the gospel has shifted. Only the incomparable Christ should appeal to you and give you hope and rest and comfort and peace. We only have one life to live and we only have one Savior to live for. Nothing else will rescue our troubled souls but Christ. There's no other refuge other than Jesus, the God-man. It is why Paul so vividly and passionately describes the Savior as he does here so that we would turn our attention away from anything and everything but the incomparable Christ. My proposition is this this morning. We cannot allow our attention to Christ, 
We cannot allow our attention to Christ be diverted so that the gospel hope of being presented holy and blameless remains steadfast. We cannot allow our attention to Christ to be diverted so that our gospel hope of being presented holy and blameless will remain steadfast. If our gospel hope is diverted, we will not remain steadfast. We will not remain stable. Our faith will not remain. And that is what Paul is after today. This is considered to many scholars a a hymn that either Paul wrote or a hymn that Paul tweaked in an effort to draw the Colossians' attention to the incomparable Christ. Paul's hymn about the incomparable Christ encompasses Jesus' relationship to every area of our lives. Throughout this passage, the word all is repeated again and again. He is the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created. All things were created through him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the beginning, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things. That's pretty encompassing. The impact that Jesus has in every area of our lives. And Paul draws our attention to his relationship to all things, but specifically four areas. And the first one is this, his relationship to God the Father, which is critical to how all of this plays out, how all of this works. Jesus is God become man, God in the flesh. Jesus is the Son who from the Trinity came to earth to represent the Father, to do the work of the Father, to do all that He sees the Father doing, to speak all the words that the Father is saying. He is, as Paul writes in verse 15, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He is the image of the invisible God. He's a portrait of God, our Father. He's the revelation of God. He he shows us what God is like. He reveals God in all of His character, His patience, His love, His mercy, His humility, His grace, His kindness, His faithfulness, His purity. Hebrews 1.3 says that He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. In John 1.18 very familiar to us. John 1.18 No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side but He has made Him known. He has made Him known. 
the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have beheld its glory. He is the image of the invisible God who no one has seen, and yet we look at Christ. And where do we see Christ? We see Christ on the pages of this book, on every page of this book. We see the Savior, and we get to see the Father. We also get to see Christ in each other. It's why we gather together on Sundays. It's why we meet together during the week. It's why we fellowship with one another because we see Christ. Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is the image of the invisible God. He is also the firstborn of all creation. Now, this is often used by heretics to say that Jesus is not God in the flesh, but that he is a created being. It's where Arius in the in the first and second century, the, the Arian heresy was that Jesus was a created being. And that's where Jehovah Witnesses come from. That's where what Arianism is. And that's where they believe Jesus is not God. He's a created being. But Paul so masterfully and wisely addresses this. He says he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And then he says this in verse 16, for by him... All things were created. So he makes it clear Jesus is the creator. All things were created through him and for him. So what does it mean he is the firstborn of all creation? Well, it certainly doesn't mean he is a created being. I love what the Nicene Creed has. It says, we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, begotten, not made of one being with the Father. That is our incomparable Christ. He is the image of God. He is the firstborn of all creation. It simply means as the firstborn, he is supreme. He is supreme. He is preeminent over all of creation as the creator. The highest honor belongs to him. That is the incomparable Christ. He is the image of the invisible God and the firstborn of all creation. That is his relationship to God the Father. They are God. Secondly, his relationship to the universe, which we just read about. He is the creator of the universe. For by him, verse 16... All things were created, all things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or rulers, dominions, authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. So by him, all things were created, all things visible, the earth 
And to us, all things invisible, angels and the heavens are subjected to him because he created them for himself. They were created through him and for him. Now, that statement that we were created for him. You you breathe and you have a body and a life and a mind and thoughts and hopes and desires. You were created by him for him. There is no greater purpose in my life and in your life than what were we were created for. You were created by him. He fashioned you. Remember Ephesians 1.4, before the foundation of the world. Before the foundation of the world. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. You were chosen by God before this world even existed. You were created by him and you were created for him. That puts a claim upon your life that exceeds all other claims for all eternity. There's nothing above and beyond living for Christ that we were created for. And so we are subjected to Him. Even thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities were all created by Him and are all subject to Him. Nothing can occur in your life. Nothing can happen to you that God does not permit, allow, or determine. You are under the care and sovereign rule of the creator of the universe because you were created for him. He is the goal of his creation. He is the end goal of his creation. That all things are created for him. Everything began with Jesus and everything will end with Jesus. He is the Alpha and He is the Omega. Now, the universe was created very good, as the writer of Genesis says, but soon it was morally corrupted by man. And yet, in God's mercy, He continues to sustain his creation. Look at verse 17. And he is before all things as creator. And in him all things hold together. He created the world by his word. He spoke. And the world existed. He spoke and you came to life. He spoke. And he sustains the world by his word. What holds the universe together 
brothers and sisters, is not an idea or some unexplained power, but the, a person, the resurrected Christ, the creator of the universe. And only the creator of the universe could transform this morally corrupted humanity. And only the creator of the universe could sustain this transformation. He is sustaining you right now. His sustaining work and power in your life is not at moments you need it. It's constant. It's unending. It's promised. You are existing at this moment because God is speaking your sustaining into being right now. Every atom, every proton, every neutron, every electron holds together. There is... there. When, when there is a nuclear explosion, there is fission where an atom is divided. And, it, and yet, and if, if God ceased to speak and to hold us together, you can imagine every human being, everything in creation, every molecule, every atom, just because you were created for him. The incomparable Christ created you and nothing else in this life will sustain you more than Jesus Christ. So his relationship to God the Father, he's the image and the firstborn. His relation to the universe, he is the creator. And thirdly, Paul writes, and he is, in verse 18, the head of the body, the church. His relationship to the church. He is, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the beginning of the church, the firstborn from the dead, the first to be resurrected, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. God dwelled up until this time in temple, in the temple. And Christ came. And he said, he is the temple. He is where God dwells. And God, in His pleasure, was pleased to dwell fully in Christ and through that dwelling, through His Son, to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Paul clearly telling us not only is Jesus the creator of the universe, he's the creator of the church. He's the creator of Grace Church, a new creation. He is not a creator just of the old creation. He's a creator of the new creation. 
We are new creations. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, old things have passed away. The new has come. And Grace Church is a part of that new creation. And because of that, he is preeminent in the universe. And he is preeminent in our midst here Now, what makes him preeminent, Paul writes, is that he is the firstborn from the dead. He is the beginning, in verse 18, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Doug Moo, in his commentary, said that he is not only the first one to experience resurrection, he is the founder of the new order of the resurrection. He's the founder of the resurrection. He's the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. The outcome of being the beginning and the firstborn is that he might be preeminent in your life today. God dwells in fullness in his son. And because of our sin, we have marred God's creation. We've shattered our relationship with him. And yet God is pleased to dwell. I love how Paul writes that God was pleased to dwell. God was pleased to dwell and to reconcile all things to himself. Now, consider that for just a moment. God is, God does not look at you and look at me and think if it wasn't for Jesus Christ, I would destroy them in a minute. Oh yeah, the wrath of God is what we deserve for our sin. And we have been justified by Christ. But God's justification of us isn't given begrudgingly. It's because God so loved the world that he gave his only son. It's because God was pleased to dwell in Christ. He is pleased to restore and reconcile his creation. Standing behind Christ is not an angry father. It's a loving, caring father, pleased to dwell in his son, the incomparable Christ, so that you who were created for him might be reconciled by the blood of Christ, that you might be at peace with God. Finally, not just his relationship to God, because he's the image and the firstborn, his relationship to the universe, he's creator, his relationship to the church, because he is the head, the body, he is our head, he rules and reigns and directs our church, but he, his relationship to believers, he is our savior. Paul transitions from verse 20 to 21, and he transitions from this incomparable Christ, this description of the Savior to us. And he does this to remind us and to bring us back to where we began so that the incomparable Christ is that much more worthy and majestic. And he says this, and you, 
were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Brothers and sisters, the contrast could not be more profound and stark about who we were and who we are now in Christ. But it is imperative that we do not pass over verse 21 too quickly. This verse helps us to make sense of the entire epistle that Paul has written to the Colossians. Devin spoke on this last week in verse 13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. Luke seven forty seven. Paraphrase, Jesus says this, he who loves much is forgiven much. He who loves little is forgiven little. Paul's transition to verse 21 is to remind you that you have been forgiven much and that the response is to love much. This verse is to help us make sense of everything in this passage and to help us more fully grasp and appreciate all that Paul is saying about our Savior, Jesus Christ. We lived in a kingdom of darkness happily, easily, and we were transferred to the kingdom of light. Our natural state, Paul writes, is hostile to God, is alienated from God in our minds. We were doing evil deeds. They weren't just neutral deeds. They were evil deeds. And... God reconciles us to himself through the shed blood of Christ on the cross. Verse 22, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order for this to present you blameless and holy and above reproach before God. Morna Hooker in her commentary says this, those who were at one time alienated are those who have been given a share in the inheritance of God's holy ones. Those who were hostile in mind and evil deeds are those who have been rescued from the power of darkness and whose calling is the knowledge of God in every good deed. Those who are reconciled through the death of Christ are those who have been transferred into his kingdom. Those whom he now presents as holy, blameless, and irreproachable are those who in him have redemption and forgiveness of sins. My friends, that is you this morning. Is this not the incomparable Christ? Now, our application is provided for us in verse 23. 
Paul's letter is to encourage all believers to resist the distractions, and it's encouraging us to draw our attention away from those distractions to the incomparable Christ. And he says this in verse 23, that we will be presented holy and blameless and above reproach before God the Father if, if, if indeed you continue in the faith stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. He warns you this morning, he warns us all that faith, our faith must remain firm, that we would be presented holy and blameless and above reproach when the day of our death The day of judgment, the day we stand before the throne of God comes. He is saying, God has reconciled you with a purpose. That purpose is to present you before God, holy and blameless and above reproach. But will you, in fact, Paul asks, will you, in fact, be presented on that day? Will you remain firm and stable in your faith and steadfast? Will you not shift from the hope of the gospel? Doug Moo says this, Paul wants to confront the Colossians with the reality that their eventual salvation depends on their remaining faithful to Christ and the true gospel. Only by continuing in their faith can they hope to find a favorable verdict from God on the day of judgment. We have in this verse a real warning. This warning, along with many similar ones, presents the human responsibility side in the biblical portrayal of final salvation. God does indeed by grace and through his spirit work to preserve his people so that they will be vindicated in the judgment. But at the same time, God's people are responsible to persevere in their faith if they expect to see that vindication. Now, my question is this for you this morning. I am your pastor and I love you and I want to care for you and I want to protect you as Paul does to these Colossian Christians. And my question to you this morning is this, is is the Christ of 15 through 20 your Christ? Is this description of the incomparable Christ your Christ? Christ. Does your world, does your daily life, do your hopes, do your love, does your desire revolve around him like a planet around the sun? Or are you the center and does he occupy just one of the other planets that revolve around your life? Is he your Christ? Is the Christ of 15 through 20, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, is he your Christ? Now, what is amazing in this passage is, as I was studying this, it just, it just leapt out at me Look at look at verse 23. 
if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. Do you know what that says? All of creation is responsible to respond to the voice of God, is responsible to respond to the hope of the gospel. And all of creation has not. And you sit here today. You believe today because you've been privileged to be chosen before the foundation of the world to believe. Not all believe. And you do. The gospel you heard that transformed you is the same gospel that you must continue to believe, listen to, and apply to your life. Listen, the gospel is not a statement. It is a person. One we are to seek to know ever more. The incomparable Christ. Faith, stable, steadfast, not shifting, emanates from knowing this book and knowing the Savior of this book. Don't let anything steal or minimize your time with Christ and your time and commitment to this local church so that your view of the incomparable Christ is never dimmed. Let's pray. Father, these are unassailable words. They are words that no man could come up with. They are words that describe the creator of the universe, the incomparable Christ. And Lord, my prayer for this church this morning is that their view of your son expands that their view of your Son only works to strengthen their hope in the gospel. And Lord, for those who might be drifting, whose gospel hope might have shifted, please draw them back today, I pray. And for those who do not know Christ, who have come in this morning, who do not have a relationship with you, would you give them that hope today? Would you transform their evil hearts to be hearts of flesh that they may call upon the name of your Son? In Christ's name we pray. Amen.